welcome, dear friends, fans, and colleagues of Voices of the Sacred Feminine Radio. Today I have something very different for you. Today is the beginning of a new series here on Voices of the Sacred Feminine. And rather than me interviewing someone else, I've heard you say time and time again that you want to hear a little bit more from me personally. And I am happy to say I've come up with a way to do that. Um, your feedback has also uh, given me this idea because some of you have said, you know, Karen, we love listening to you on the radio, but uh, your books, we wish that we could hear your books rather than having to sit and read your books because we could listen uh, when we're washing clothes or doing dishes or getting ready to take a pl- you know a plane somewhere. Uh, anyway, uh, so you have requested this, and I am happy to oblige. So what we're doing is starting an audio book series uh, based on my book, Goddess Calling. And today is the first one of the series. We'll probably have about 12, I believe. Uh, they are either going to be sacred messages or meditations from my book, Goddess Calling, Um, Sacred Feminine uh, Liberation Theology, uh, Messages and uh, Meditations of Sacred Feminine Liberation Theology. So um, I hope you enjoy this reading from Goddess Calling. It's called Separating Truth from Myth, and it was inspired by stories, old wives' tales, and urban legends that become uh, just accepted as truth. So with uh, another Thanksgiving uh, only recently behind us and the holiday of Christmas just ahead, both times when history is distorted by fairy tales, religious mythology, those sorts of things, consider this sacred message for inspiration and insight. So this is Chapter 13, Separating Truth from Myth, from my uh, newest book, Goddess Calling. Once you realize how the feminine face of God was swept beneath the sands of time, you begin to realize what passes for truth, history, and myth is written by the conquerors or those in power, often for their own agenda. Many examples come to mind. What we know about Cleopatra comes mostly from her enemies. Can we truly have an accurate picture of this powerful and resourceful woman? And what about all the women whose accomplishments never make the history books? We're constantly reminded of that when we see the dearth of women's history during Women's History Month. Goddess advocates do not believe the myth of the Egyptian goddess Sekhmet actually conveys her true essence in history. We theorize the myth of this goddess being a mercenary for her father, the sun god Ra, is clouded in a patriarchal purpose, perhaps as a story to fear women or for women to fear their own power. Mary Magdalene was thought to be a prostitute for centuries, and that story was rather quietly corrupted only a few decades ago. The goddess Athena in patriarchal times is birthed not from her mother, Metis, but from the head of Zeus. We can see how even natural laws are turned on their head when those with the leisure, authority, or power are writing the history books. And these stories have important consequences in society. Think about how the church silenced science and jailed men who would tell us the earth revolved around the sun or how the new Christian beliefs taking hold in the world diminished women and led us into the dark ages. 
It wasn't only women who were victimized. What about the destruction of the cultures of the Hawaiians, Native Americans, and Aztecs, to name a few, uh, closer to home? On our own continent, uh, in North America here, if you're in the United States, in America, we have our own version of history. No doubt some Americans turn a blind eye to our country's influence abroad or see the influence one way, while the countries feeling the might of our heavy hand would tell a different story. In my short lifetime, many still question the truth behind the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, whether anyone in our government had advanced knowledge of the bombing of Pearl Harbor or our government's possible collusion or knowledge of the fall of the Twin Towers on September 11th. When you realize how history can be fluid and help and truth slip through our fingers like drops of water, then we have an obligation to try to separate truth from myth. How many people still believe Saddam Hussein was responsible for 9-11? How many deny the science of global warming? What about those responsible for writing children's history books in Texas wanting to omit the writings of Thomas Jefferson and liberal or African-American people because conservatives prefer to have these contribution and ideas hidden from developing minds? Likewise, the George W. Bush Library in Texas is busy going about distorting the facts about the Iraq War. Will enough people remember the facts of the last decade, or will truth be lost over time? What's missing from history books? Truth and myth seem to always be in flux, thanks to those with the time and money to rewrite history to their advantage, like those patriarchs who would give men the life-giving capabilities possessed only by women, or Abrahamic religions that would do away with those heathens revering goddess. Remember the destruction of the library in, in Alexandria? So too did the real history of the indigenous people of America become romanticized and lost as Puritan imperialism set out to conquer the Indians and grab their land. As we sit down each Thanksgiving to give thanks, yes, we really must think about what history really is. As we sit down at Thanksgiving and give thanks for our bounty, it would probably be important to recognize that those sentiments of gratitude did not originate with the pilgrims. Instead, they had, a long, they had long been part of the paradigm of the indigenous people who relied so heavily on Mother Earth for their sustenance long before the Puritans arrived on the continent. In fact, it was the generosity, hospitality, and gift-giving of the Indians that kept the pilgrims alive when they arrived in America ill-equipped to sustain themselves. So while Thanksgiving has become an important symbol of cooperation among people, Americans must face that that peace between the pilgrims and Indians was short-lived. In fact, the purpose of the gathering on that first Thanksgiving was to negotiate a treaty that would secure the lands of the Plymouth Plantation for the pilgrims, and possibly out of a sense of charity toward their hosts, it was the Indians who brought the majority of the food, which they say was five deer, wild turkey, fish, beans, squash, corn, soup, cornbread, and berries. Indian women and men sat together to eat with the pilgrim men, while pilgrim women stood quietly behind the feasting table, awaiting their men to finish their meal before they might partake of the feast. 
It might be stunning to realize who the pilgrims actually were. Political revolutionaries who intended to overthrow the government of England who came to the New World to establish the kingdom of God as foretold in the book of Revelation. When they realized they could not impose their rule of saints, strict Puritan orthodoxy on the British people, they came to America over time in hundreds of ships with the intent to build their holy kingdom. They saw themselves as the chosen elect and used any means, including deceptions, treachery, torture, and slavery, war and genocide, to achieve their goals. These people were not the stuff of Hollywood's pilgrims or mythology's noble civilization versus the savages. They were rigid fundamentalists, and anyone who wasn't with them was against them. Not much has changed. Consider the Thanksgiving sermon delivered at Plymouth in 1623 by Mather the Elder, who gave thanks for the smallpox plague, which wiped out the majority of the Wampanoag Indians who had been their teachers and benefactors. Mather thanked God for destroying the children and young men, which he considered the seeds of increase, thus clearing the land and clearing the forest to make way for better growth. In other words, the pilgrims. The very people who had been their salvation, feeding them and teaching the pilgrims the agricultural ways of the region so they might survive, were in actuality exploited and viewed as instruments of the devil. In time, the pilgrims displayed the same intolerance toward the Indians and their religion that they displayed toward the less popular religions in Europe. Relationships deteriorated, trust was lost. It was the beginning of the end for the generous indigenous people who welcomed the pilgrims with open arms. Within 50 years, the Waponid tribe, was so instrumental in helping the pilgrims get a foothold, was extinct. It might be interesting to note that about 150 years later, Benjamin Franklin invited one of the indigenous tribes of the region, the Iroquois, to Albany, New York, to explain their democratic system of government to the country's forefathers. The forefathers were so impressed by what the Iroquois taught them, they developed the Albany Plan of Union a document which served as a model for the Articles of Confederation and the Constitution of the United States. Notable, too, among the Iroquois, women held the deciding vote in many important matters, and both genders enforced the laws of the village and helped solve problems. Yet how many Americans know this version of history? Most of the Native Americans probably do. They know better than most non-Native Americans the history of the Trail of Tears and the devastation brought upon their culture by Christian-run Native American boarding schools. So let's be very careful when we think we know our ancestors and our history or even what's happening in our present. Let us not be captivated by propaganda, romanticism, or even the movie-making of Hollywood, or particularly the patriarchal conquerors who would rewrite history for the sake of their legacies as they whitewash their misdeeds, their greed, and their exploitation. Let us forever be vigilant to seek out the untold story, lest we celebrate falsehoods and sanitized versions of history across the globe. 
Well, I hope you enjoyed that. That was Chapter 13, Separating Truth from Myth, from my book, God is Calling, Inspirational Messages and Meditations of Sacred Feminine Liberation Theology which was actually given a thumbs up by a number of people you'll probably recognize. Jean Houston said, um, it's a strong, courageous book that will either set your teeth on edge or make you laugh with joy. Selena Fox uh, called it uh, Political Perspectives to Challenge Oppression, Ecofeminist Theology to Empower Action, Goddess Meditations to Feed the Soul. Barbara Walker said, Tate encourages all women to rediscover their sacred history, to break the shackles that patriarchal culture has imposed on them, and to take action for the preservation of our Mother Earth. And the meditations are profoundly engaging. So, anyway, um, I hope you will uh, uh, possibly check it out. Uh, I will be running a series of about a dozen of these. You can find them. Um, uh, they're actually going to be on YouTube. I'm going to release one every three to four weeks, uh, but I will be putting them here on Blog Talk as well. So uh, if you don't have the book or you prefer to listen, you can go to YouTube or hear them here on Voices of the Sacred Feminine Radio. And while I have a couple extra minutes to uh, before we go off the air here, uh, I don't often talk much about my own books. I usually uh, use my radio show to give other people a platform for their work. Uh, I would hope you might go to my website at KarenTate.com and check out my other books. My first book was Sacred Places of Goddess, 108 Destinations. And what you might not know about that book is um, if you're here in the United States or anywhere for that matter and you're looking to maybe drive your own uh, goddess pilgrimage or sacred goddess tour, uh, Sacred Places of Goddess is set up so that you can uh, start in Northern California and drive south along the coast uh, all the way down to the San Diego area and hit about half a dozen different sacred sites of goddess in California. So if you're hesitant to fly across the Atlantic or the Pacific and want to um, uh, you know, to actually visit sacred sites of goddess here in the United States, uh, you can do a, a whole tour, uh, for a week-long tour, uh, just going up and down the coast of uh, California. And uh, you can find out more about that in my book. Uh, there are, of course, uh, other destinations uh, in the United States as well as across uh, five other continents. So uh, Sacred Places of Goddess uh, tells you about the places, the goddess, the culture, um, it's not just one of these travel books that uh, recommends hotels and that sort of thing, but it does give directions where you can actually find these destinations. Or, you know, people have said um, they enjoy reading it uh, from their armchair because uh, they're not much on actually getting out there and seeing things. And the book sort of bring these, brings these sacred sites and the worship of goddess past and present uh, alive for them. Uh, Walking an Ancient Path was my second book, and um, it uh, was an award winner. Um, uh, that one uh, is divided into sections of the elements, uh, air, fire, water, spirit, earth. Uh, we talk about uh, sacred journeys that we've made. We talk about the inspiration of goddess. Uh, we talk about politics, you know, their meditations and their prayers, um, you know, stories of magical uh, experiences that are really quite unexplained, prophecy, 
an assortment of things. It's uh, you know quite an eclectic collection. And uh, and then there's the anthology of the radio show, Voices of the Sacred Feminine, which uh, is essays and transcripts uh, from some of my wonderful guests. And uh, while I'm talking about this, uh, I don't want you to forget FEM, Women Healing the World. Uh, it was my honor and privilege uh, to be in that uh, documentary uh, with um, my mentors, Rianne Eisler, Jean Houston, 